Part two, your brain and meditation. Chapter six, three brains, thinking to doing to being. It's often useful to compare one's brain to a computer. And it's true that yours already has all the hardware you'll need to change yourself and your life. But do you know how best use that hardware to install new software? Picture two computers with identical hardware and software, one in the hands of a tech novice and the other being used by an experienced computer operator. The beginner knows little about what kind of things a computer can do, let alone how to do them. The intention behind part two, simply put, is to provide pertinent information about the brain so that when you, as its operator, begin to use a meditative process to change your life, you will know what needs to happen in your brain and in your meditations and why. Change entails new ways of thinking, doing, and being. If you know how to drive a car, then you've already experienced probably the most elementary example of thinking, doing, and being. At first, you had to think about every action you took and about all those rules on the road. Later, you became fairly proficient at driving, as long as you paid conscious attention to what you were doing. Eventually, you were being a driver. Your conscious mind slid over and became a passenger, and ever since, your subconscious mind has probably occupied the driver's seat most of the time. Driving has become automatic and second nature to you. Much of what you learn is via the progression from thinking to doing to being. In three areas of the brain facilitate this mode of learning. But did you know that you can also go directly from thinking to being? And it's likely that you've already experienced this in your life. Through the meditation, that is the heart of this book, this chapter will give you a prelude. You can go from thinking about the ideal self you want to become straight to being the new self. That is the key to quantum creating. Change all begins with thinking we can immediately form new neurological connections and circuits that reflect our new thoughts. And nothing gets the brain more excited than when it's learning, assimilating knowledge and experiences. These are aphrodisiacs for the brain. It fondles every signal it receives from our five senses. Every second, it processes billions of bits of data. It analyzes, examines, identifies, extrapolates, classifies, and files information, which it can retrieve for us on as, as needed basis. Truly, the human brain is this planet's ultimate supercomputer. As you'll recall, the basis for understanding how you can actually change your mind is the concept of hardwiring, how neurons engage in long-term habitual relationships. I've talked about uh, Hebian learning, which states nerve cells that fire together, wire together. Neuroscientists used to think that after childhood, brain structures were relatively immutable. But new findings reveal that many aspects of the brain and nervous system can change structurally and functionally, including learning, 
memory, and recovery from brain damage throughout adulthood. But the opposite is also true. Nerve cells that no longer fire together, no longer wire together. If you don't use it, you lose it. You can even focus conscious thought to disconnect or unwire unwanted connections. Thus, it is possible to let go of some of the stuff you've been holding on to and the colors, the way you think, you act and you feel. The rewired brain will no longer fire according to the circuitry of the past. The gift of neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to rewire and create new circuits at any age as a result of input from the environment and our conscious intentions, is that we can create a new level of mind. There's a sort of neurological, out of the old, in with the new, a process that neuroscientists call pruning and sprouting. It's what I call unlearning and learning, and it creates the opportunity for us to rise above our current limitations and to be greater than our conditioning or our circumstances. In creating a new habit of being ourselves, we are essentially taking conscious control over what has become an unconscious process of being. Instead of the mind working towards one goal, I'm not going to be an angry person, and the body working towards another, let's stay angry and keep bathing in those familiar chemicals. We want to unify the brain's intent with the body's responses. To do this, we must create a new way of thinking, doing, and being. Given that to change our lives, we first have to change our thoughts and feelings, then do something, change our actions or our behaviors to have a new experience, which in turn produces a new feeling. And then we must memorize that feeling until we move into a state of being when mind and body are one. At least we've got a few things going for us. Along with the brain being neuroplastic, we could say that we have more than one brain to work with. In effect, we have three of them. For our purpose, this chapter will limit its focus to those functions of the three brains that relate specifically to breaking the habit of being ourselves. On a personal note, I find that studying what the brain and other components of our nervous system do for us is an endless, fascinating exploration. My first book, Evolve Your Brain, covers this topic in more detail than would serve our purpose here. There are additional resources for my study on the website, www.drjoedispenza.com. And of course, many other excellent publications and websites are available for those who want to learn more about the brain, the mind, and the body. Um, on page 126, there is images of the three brains. Um, I highly recommend you look at that um, in a hard copy book or um, in a Kindle version. From thinking to doing, the neocortex processes knowledge, then prompts us to live what we've learned. Our thinking brain is a neocortex, the brain's walnut like outer covering. 
humanity's newest, most advanced neurological hardwire. The neocortex is the seat of the conscious mind, our identity, and our higher brain functions. The frontal lobe discussed in earlier chapters is one of the four parts of the neocortex. Essentially, the neocortex is the brain's archetype or designer. It allows you to learn, remember, reason, analyze, plan, create, speculate on possibilities, invent, and communicate. Since this area is where you log sensory data, such as what you see and hear, the neocortex plugs you into external reality. In general, the neocortex process knowledge and experience. First, you gather knowledge in the form of facts or semantic information, philosophical or theoretical concepts or ideas that you learn intellectually, prompting the neocortex to add new synoptic connections and circuits. Second, once you decide to personalize or apply knowledge you've acquired, to demonstrate what you've learned, you will invariably create new experience. This causes patterns of neurons called neural networks to form in the neocortex. These networks reinforce the circuitry of what you learn intellectually. If the neocortex had a model, it might be knowledge is for the mind. Simply put, Knowledge is the precursor to experience. Your neocortex is responsible for processing ideas that you have not yet experienced, which exists as potential for you to embrace at some future time. As you entertain new thoughts, you begin to think about modifying your behavior so that you can do something differently when opportunities present itself in order to have a new outcome. As you then alter your routine actions and typical behaviors, something different from the norm should happen, which will produce a new event for you to experience. From new event to new emotions, the limbic brain produces chemicals to help us remember experiences. This limbic brain, also known as the mammalian brain, located under the neocortex, is the most highly developed and specialized area of the brain in mammals other than humans, dolphins, and higher primates. Just think of the limbic brain as a chemical brain or the emotional brain. When you're in the midst of that new experience and your senses send a rush of corresponding information from the external world to your neocortex, its neural networks organize themselves to reflect the event. Thus, experience enriches the brain even further than the new knowledge. The moment those networks of neurons fire with a pattern specific to that new experience, the emotional brain manufactures and releases chemicals in the form of peptides. This chemical cocktail has a specific signature that reflects the emotions you're experiencing in the moment. As you now know, emotions are the end products of experiences. A new experience creates a new emotion, which signals new genes in a new way. Thus, emotions signal the body to record the event chemically. 
and you begin to embody what you are learning. In the process, the limbic brain assists in forming long-term memories. You can remember any experience better because you can recall how you felt emotionally while the event was occurring. The neocortex and limbic brains together enable us to form declarative memories, meaning that we can declare what we've learned or experienced. And for more information on declarative and non-declarative memories, look at figure 6b. You can see then how we are marked emotionally by highly charged experiences. All people who have been married can tell you uh, where they were and what they were doing when they or the beloved proposed. Perhaps they were eating a great meal on a patio at their favorite restaurant, feeling in balmy breezes on that summer night and enjoying the sunset while the strains of Mozart played softly in the background. When their dinner partner got down on one knee and held out a little black box. The combination of everything they were experiencing in that moment made them feel very different from their normal self. The typical internal chemical balance that their identity self had memorized got knocked out of order by what they saw, heard, and felt. In a sense, they woke up from the familiar routine environment stimuli that typically bombards the brain and causes us to think and feel in a predictable ways. Novel events surprise us to the point that we become more aware in the present moment. If the limbic brain has a motto, it might be, experience is for the body. If knowledge is for the mind and experience is for the body, then when you apply knowledge and create a new experience, you teach the body what the mind has intellectually learned. Knowledge without experience is merely philosophy. Experience without knowledge is ignorance. There's a progression that has to take place. You have to take knowledge and live it, embrace it emotionally. If you're still with me and I've been discussing how you change your life, you've learned about gaining knowledge and then taking action to have a new experience, which produces a new feeling. Next, you have to memorize the feeling and move what you've learned from the conscious mind to the subconscious mind. You've already got the hardware to do that in the third brain area we'll discuss. From thinking and doing to being, the cerebellum stores habitual thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. Do you remember my talking about the common experience when we can't, can't consciously remember a phone number, ATM pin, or lock combinations, but we practice it so often that the body knows better than the brain and our fingers can automatically get the job done? That may seem like a small thing, but when the body knows equal to or better than the conscious mind, when you can repeat an experience at will without much conscious effort, then you've memorized the action, behavior, attitude, or emotional reaction until it has become a skill or a habit. When you reach this level of ability, you have moved into a state of being. 
In the process, you've activated the third brain area that plays a major role in changing your life, the cerebellum, seat of the subconscious. The most active part of the brain, the cerebellum, is located at the back of the skull. Think of it as the brain's microprocessor and memory center. Every neuron in the cerebellum has a potential to connect with at least 200,000 and up to a million other cells to process, balance, coordinate, awareness of the spatial relation of the body parts and execution of controlled movement. The cerebellum stores certain types of simple action and skills along with hardwired attitudes, emotional reactions, repeated actions, habits, conditioned behaviors and unconscious reflexes and skills that we've mastered and memorized. Possessing amazing memory storage, it can easily download various forms of learned information into a program state of mind and body. When you're in a state of being, you begin to memorize a new neurochemical self. That's when the cerebellum takes over, making that new state of an implicit part of your subconscious programming. Scientists' studies in habit formation include an additional part of the brain called the basal ganglia, which works along with programming for intents and purposes. We will simply note it here. The cerebellum is the site of the non-declarative memories, meaning that you've done or practiced something so many times that it's become second nature and you don't have to think about it. And it becomes so automatic that it's hard to declare or describe how you do it. When that happens, you'll arrive at a point when happiness or whatever attitude, behavior, skill, or trait you've been focusing on and rehearsing mentally or physically will become an innately memorized program of the new self. Let's use a true to life example to take a practical look at how these three brains take us from thinking to doing to Let's use a true to life example to take a practical look at how these three brains take us from thinking to doing to being. First, we'll see how through conscious mental rehearsal, the thinking brain, neocortex, uses knowledge to activate new circuits in new ways to make a new mind. Then our thoughts create an experience and via the emotional limbic brain that produces a new emotion. Our thinking and feeling brains condition the body to a new mind. Finally, if we reach a point where mind and body are working as one, the cerebellum enables us to memorize a new neurochemical self and our new state of being is now an innate program in our subconscious. A real life example of the three brains in action. As a practical look into these ideas, Suppose that you recently read a few thought-provoking books about compassion, including one written by the Dalai Lama, a biography of Mother Teresa, and an account of the work of St. Francis of Assisi. This knowledge allowed you to think outside the box. Reading this material would have forged new synoptic connections if you're in your thinking brain. Essentially, you learned about the philosophy of compassion 
through others' experiences, not yours. Moreover, you've sustained through those neural connections by reviewing what you've learned on a daily basis. You're so enthusiastic that you are solving all your friends' problems by offering advice and holding court. You have become the great philosopher. Intellectually, you know your stuff. As you're driving home from work, your spouse calls to say that you've been invited to dinner with your mother-in-law in three days. You pull off the road and already you're thinking about how you've disliked your mother-in-law. Intensely, ever since she hurt your feelings 10 years ago, Soon you've got a mental laundry list. You've never liked her opinionated ways of talking, how she interrupts others, how she smells, even how she cooks. Whenever you're around her, your heart races, your jaw tightens, your face and body are tense. You feel jittery and you just wanna jump up and leave. Still sitting in your car, re you remember those books on the philosophy of compassion and you think about what you've learned theoretically. It occurs to you, maybe if I try to apply what I read in those books, I might have a new experience with my mother-in-law. What did I learn that I can personalize to change the outcome of this dinner? When you contemplate applying what, that understanding with your mother-in-law, something wonderful begins to happen. You decide not to react to her with your typical set of automatic programs. Instead, you begin to think about who you no longer wanna be and who you want to be instead. You ask yourself, how do I not want to feel and how am I not going to act when I see her? Your frontal lobe begins to cool off the neural circuits that are connected to that old you. You're starting to unwire or prune away that old you from functioning as an identity. You could say that because your brain isn't firing in the same way, you no longer create the same mind. When you review what those books said to you, plan how you want to think, feel and look towards your mother-in-law, you ask yourself, how can I modify my behavior, my actions, my reactions, so my new experience leads to a new feeling? So you picture yourself greeting and hugging her, asking her questions about things you know she's interested in, complimenting her on her new hairdo or glasses, over the next few days, you mentally rehearse your new ideal of self. You continue to install more neurological hardware so you'll have the proper circuits in place, in effect, a new software program when you actually interact with your mother-in-law. For most of us to go from thinking to doing is like inspiring snails to pick up the pace. We wanna stay in the intellectual, philosophical realm of our reality. We like to identify with a memorized, recognizable feeling of our familiar self. Instead, by surrendering old thought patterns, interrupting habitual emotional reactions, and foregoing knee-jerking behavior, 
than planning and rehearsing new ways of being, you're putting yourself into the equation of the knowledge you've learned and beginning to create a new mind. You are reminding yourself who you want to be. But there's another step that we must address here. What happens as you begin to observe your old personality self related to the familiar thoughts, habitual behavior, and memorized emotions that you previously connected with your mother-in-law? In a way, you were going into an operating system of the subconscious mind where those programs exist, and you were the observer of those programs. When you can become aware of or notice who you are being, you are becoming conscious of your unconscious self. As you began to psychologically project yourself into a potential situation, ahead of the actual experience, the impending dinner, you begin to rewire your neural circuitry to look as though the event, being compassionate towards your mother-in-law, has already taken place. Once those new neural networks begin to fire in unison, your brain creates a picture, a vision, model of what I will call a hologram, a multi-dimensional image, representing the ideal self that you were focused on being. The instant that happened, you became what you were thinking about and more real than anything else. Your brain captured the thought as the experience and upscaled its gray matter to look as though the experience has already occurred. Embodying knowledge through experience, teaching the body what the mind has learned. Soon it's game time and you find yourself sitting at the dinner face to face with good old mom. Instead of knee jerking when her typical behavior manifests, you stay conscious, remember what you learned and decide to try it out. Rather than judging, attacking or feeling animosity towards her, you do something completely different for you. Like the books encouraged, you stay in the present moment. You open your heart and really listen to what she's saying. You no longer hold her to her past. Lo and behold, you modify your behavior and restrain your impulsive emotional reactions, thereby creating a new experience with your mother-in-law. That activates the limbic brain to cook up a new blend of chemicals, which generates a new emotion. And all of a sudden, you truly start to feel compassion for her. You see her for who she is. You even see aspects of yourself in her. Your muscles relax, you feel your heart opening, and you breathe deeply and freely. You had such a great feeling that day that it lingers. Now you're inspired and open-minded, and you find that you truly love your mother-in-law. As you couple your new internal feelings of goodwill and love with this person in your external reality, you connect compassion with your mother-in-law. You form a new associative memory. Once you began to feel the emotion of compassion, in a sense, you chemically instructed your body what your mind philosophically new. 
and that activated and modified some of your genes. Now you've gone from thinking to doing. Your behaviors match your conscious intentions. Your actions are equal to your thought. Mind and body are aligned and working together. You are exactly what those people did in the book. So by intellectually learning compassion with your brain and mind, then demonstrating this ideal in your environment through experience, you embodied this elevated feeling. You have just conditioned your body to a new mind of compassion. Your mind and body were working together. You embodied compassion. In a sense, the word has become flesh. Two brains have taken you from thinking to doing, but can you create a state of being? From your efforts to embody compassion, you now have your neocortex and limbic brains working together. You're out of the box of the familiar habitual memorized self, which operates within a set of automatic programs, and you're in a new thinking and feeling cycle. You've experienced how compassion feels, and you like it better than that covert hostility, rejection, and suppressed anger. Hold on. Though you're not yet ready for sainthood, it's not enough to have mind and body working together one time. That got you from thinking to doing. But can you produce that feeling of compassion at will? Can you repeatedly embody compassion independent of conditions in your environment so that no person or situation could ever create that old state of being in you again? If not, you haven't mastered compassion. My definition of mastery is that our internal, internal chemical state is greater than anything in our external world. You are a master when you've conditioned yourself with chosen thoughts and feelings, you've memorized desired emotional chemical states, and nothing in your external life deters you from your aims. No person, no thing, no experience at any time or place should disrupt your internal chemical coherence. You can think, act, and feel differently whenever you choose. If you can master suffering, you can just as easily master joy. You probably know someone who has mastered suffering, right? So you call her and ask her, how are you? So-so. Listen. I'm going to go out with some friends to a new art gallery and then eat at this restaurant that has really healthy desserts. Afterwards, we're gonna go listen to some live music. Would you like to come with us? No, I don't feel like it. But if she said what she actually meant, she'd say, I've memorized this emotional state and nothing in my environment, no person, no experience, no condition, no thing, is going to move me from my internal chemical state of suffering. It feels better to me in pain than to let go and be happy. I'm enjoying my addiction for now. And all these things that you want me to do distract me from my emotional dependency. But guess what? We can just as easily master an internal chemical state as joy or compassion. 
in the preceding example with your mother-in-law, if you practice your thoughts, behaviors, and feelings enough times, being compassionate would become rather natural. You could evolve from just thinking about it to doing something about it to being. Being means that it's easy, natural, second nature, routine, and unconscious. Compassion and love would be as automatic and familiar to you as those self-limiting emotions you changed. So now you need to replicate the experience of thinking, feeling, and acting out of compassion. If you do, you will break the addiction of your past emotional state and neurochemically conditioned your body and mind to memorize the internal chemical state called compassion better than your conscious mind. Ultimately, if you repeat, repeatedly recreate the experience of compassion at will, practicing it independent of any circumstance in your life, your body would become the mind of compassion. You would memorize compassion so well that nothing from your outside world would move you from that state of being. Now, all three brains are working together and you're biologically, neurologically, and genetically in the state of compassion when compassion becomes unconditionally ordinary and familiar to you. You have progressed from knowledge to experience to wisdom. Progressing to a state of being, the role of our two memory systems. We have three brains that allow us to evolve from thinking to doing to being. There's an excellent chart on page 136, figure 6B. There are two memory systems in the brain. The first system is called the declarative or explicit memories. When we remember that we can declare what we have learned or experienced, those are declarative memories. There are two types of declarative memory. Knowledge, semantic memories derived from philosophical knowledge and experience. Episodic memories derived from sensory experiences, identified as events in our lives with particular people, animals, or objects, where we were doing or witnessing a certain thing at a particular time and place. Episodic memories tend to imprint longer in the brain and body than semantic memories. The second memory system is called the non-declarative or implicit memories. When we practice something so many times that it becomes second nature, we no longer have to think about it. It's like we almost can't declare how we do it. The body and the mind are one. This is the seat of our skills, habits, automatic behaviors, associative memories, unconscious attitudes, and emotional reactions. Knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. Thus, when we take what we've learned intellectually, neocortex, and apply it, personalize it, or demonstrate it, we will modify our behavior in some way. When we do, we will, re we will create a new experience, which will produce a new emotion, limbic brain. If we can repeat, replicate, or experience that action at will, we will move into a state of being, cerebellum. 
Wisdom is accumulated knowledge that has gained, been gained through repeated experience. And when being compassionate is as natural as suffering, judging, blaming, or being frustrated, negative, or insecure, now we are wise. We are liberated to seize new opportunities because somehow life seems to organize itself equal to how or who we are being. Going from thinking straight to being, a prelude to meditation. Going from thinking to doing to being is a progression that we've all experienced many times. Whether it was when we learned to be a driver, a skier, a knitter, or a person to whom speaking a second language has become second nature. Now let's talk about one evolution's greatest gift to us as humans, the ability to go from thinking to being without taking any physical action. Said another way, we can create a new state of being ahead of having an actual material experience. We do this all the time. And it's not a case of fake it till you make it. For example, you've had a sexual fantasy in which you inwardly experience all the thoughts, feelings, and actions you look forward to when your partner returns from a trip. You're so present with your internal experience that your body is chemically altered and responds as though it was a future event is already upon you in that exact moment. You have moved into a new state of being. Similarly, whether you mentally rehearse the speech you're going to give, reminding yourself how you're going to handle the confrontations that you need to have with your coworker, or imagining that what you want to eat when you're really hungry but been stuck in traffic. And in each case, you're thinking about that to exclusion of everything else, your body will begin to psychologically move into a state of being just by the thought alone. Okay, but how far can you take this? Through thinking and feeling alone, you can finally be the person you want to be? Can you create and live a chosen reality? as my daughter did when she experienced the summer job of her dreams. That's where meditation comes in. People use meditative techniques for a lot of reasons. As you know, in this book, you'll learn a special meditation designed for a specific purpose to help you overcome the habit of being yourself and become that ideal self you desire. Through the remainder of this chapter, we'll connect some of the knowledge we've covered up to now with the meditation you will soon, soon learn. Whenever I discuss meditation, the meditative process, I will be referring to the process that we will be focused on in part three. Meditation allows us to change our brain, body, and state of being. Most important, we can make these changes without having to take physical action, or have any interaction with the external environment. Through meditation, we can install the necessary neurological hardware, which will become a software program, just as those piano players did. We can also influence a body, like the finger exercises, who can change themselves mental, through mental rehearsal. Those research subjects use mental rehearsal alone, but for our purpose, 
It's one component of the meditative process, albeit a very important one. If I ask you to think about the qualities of your ideal self would possess, or if I suggested that you contemplate what it would feel like to be a person of greatness, such as Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela, then just by contemplating a new way of being, you would begin firing your brain in a new way and making a new mind. That's mental rehearsal in action. I'm now asking you to reflect on what it would feel like to be happy, content, satisfied, and at peace. What would you envision for yourself if you were creating a new ideal you? Essentially, the meditative process allows you to answer this question by bringing together all the information learned and wired synoptically in your brain about what it means to be happy, content, satisfied, and at peace. In meditation, you take the knowledge and then place yourself in that equation. Instead of merely asking what it would mean to be happy, you put yourself in the position of practicing and thus living in a state of happiness. After all, you know what happiness looks and feels like. You've had past experiences with it yourself. You've seen other people's versions of it. Now you get to pick and choose from that knowledge and experience to create a new ideal of yourself. I'm talking about how through the frontal lobe, you activate new circuits in new ways to create a new mind. Once you experience that new mind, your brain creates a kind of holographic image that gives you a model to follow in creating your future reality. Because you have installed new neural circuits ahead of any real experiences, you don't have to carry out a nonviolent revolution as Gandhi did. You don't have to lead your people to be burned at the stake as Joan of Arc was. You simply have to use your knowledge and experience of those qualities of courage and conviction to produce an emotional effect within you. The result will be a state of mind. By repeatedly producing the state of mind, it will become familiar to you and you will be wiring new circuits. The more often you produce that state of mind, the more those thoughts will become the experience. Once that thought experience transformation takes place, the end product of that experience will be feeling and emotion. When this occurs, your body as the unconscious mind does not know the difference between an event that takes place in physical reality and the emotions you create by thought alone. As someone who is conditioning the body to a new mind, you'll find that your thinking brain and the emotional brain are now working in concert. Remember that thoughts are for the brain and feelings for the body. When you are both thinking and feeling in a specific way as part of the meditative process, you're different from when you started out. The newly installed circuits, the neurological and chemical changes that have been produced by those thoughts and emotions have altered you in such a way that there's a physical evidence in the brain and body that shows those changes. At that point, you've moved into a state of being. 
you no longer just practicing happiness or gratitude or whatever, you are being grateful or being happy. You can produce that state of mind and body every day. You can continually re-experience an event and produce the emotional response to that experience of how you would feel if you were that new ideal self. If you can get up from your meditative session and be in that new state of being, altered neurologically, biologically, chemically, and genetically, you have activated those changes ahead of any experience, and you will be more prone to acting and thinking in ways equal to who you are being. You have broken the habit of being yourself. Thinking to being, thinking through frontal lobe mental rehearsal activates new circuits in new ways. Thinking brain makes a new mind neocortex. Feeling, thoughts become the experience. Thought as the experience creates a new feeling. The thinking brain turns on the feeling brain and conditions the body to a new mind. Neocortex in limbic emotional brain. Being. The body becomes the mind. The mind and body work as one. Memorize neurochemical self, cerebellum. States of being. Think, do, being. You can go from thinking to being without having to do anything. If you are mentally rehearsing a new mind, there will come a moment that the thoughts you are thinking about will become the experience. When this occurs, the end product of what inward experience is an emotion or feeling. Once you can feel what it would feel like to be that person, your body as the unconscious mind begins to believe it. It is in that reality. Now your mind and body begin to work as one and you are being that person without having to do anything yet. As you move into a new state of being by thought alone, you will be more prone to do things and think things equal to how you are being. As a reminder, when you are in a new state of being, a new personality, you also create a new personal reality. Let me repeat that. A new state of being creates a new personality. A new personality produces a new personal reality. How will you know whether this meditative practice has activated your three brains to produce the intended effect? Simple. You'll feel different as a result of investing in the process. If you feel exactly as you did before, if the same catalysts produce the same reactions in you, then nothing's happened in the quantum field. Your same thoughts and feelings are reproducing the same electromagnetic signal in the field. You haven't changed chemically, neurologically, genetically, or in any other way. But if you eventually get up after meditational sessions and feel different from when you began them, and if you can maintain that modified state of mind and body, then you have changed. What you've changed inside of you, the new state of being that you've created, should now produce an effect outside of you.
You've moved beyond the cause and effect model of the universe, that old Newtonian concept of something external to you controlling your thoughts, actions, and emotions. I'll return to this point in a bit. You'll also know that your meditation has been fruitful if something unexpected or new serendipitously shows up in your life as a result of your efforts. Remember, the quantum model tells us that you have created a new mind in a new state of being. You have altered electromagnetic signature because you are thinking and feeling differently. You have changed, you are changing reality. Together, thoughts and feelings can do this. Separately, they cannot. Let me remind you again, you can't think one way and feel another and expect anything in your life to change. The combination of your thoughts and feelings is your state of being. Change your state of being and change your reality. Here's where coherent signals really come into play. If you can send them in the quantum field, a signal coherent in thought and feeling, state of being, independent of the external world, then something different will show up in your life. When it does, you'll be no doubt experienced a powerful emotional response, which will inspire you to create a new reality once again. And you can use that emotion, emotion to generate an even more wonderful experience. Let me get back to Newton. We're all conditioned by the Newtonian notion that life is dominated by cause and effect. When something good happens to us, we express gratitude or joy. So we go through life waiting for someone or something outside ourselves to regulate our feelings. Instead, I'm asking you to take control and to invert the process. Rather than waiting for an occasion to cause you to feel a certain way, create the feeling of any experience in the physical realm. Convince your body emotionally that the gratitude generating experience has already taken place. To do this, you can pick a potential in the quantum field and get in touch with how it would feel if you were experiencing it. I'm asking you to use thought and feeling to put yourself in the shoes of the future self, that possible you, so vividly that you can begin emotionally condition your body to believe that you are that person now. When you open your eyes after your meditative process, who do you want to be? Would it feel like to be this ideal self? or to have this desired experience? To fully break the habit of being yourself, say goodbye to cause and effect and embrace the quantum model of reality. Choose a potential reality that you want, live it in your thoughts and feelings and give thanks ahead of time of the actual event. Can you accept the notion that once you change your internal state, you don't need the external world to provide you with a reason to feel joy, gratitude, appreciation, or any other elevated emotion? When your body experiences the event is occurring in that moment and it feels real to you, based solely on what you focused on mentally and feeling emotionally, then you're experiencing the future now. The moment you're in the state of being in that now moment and present in that experience, that's when you're connected to all possible realities that exist in the quantum field. Remember that, is, that if you are in the past or in the future based on your familiar emotions or anticipated 
anticipation of some effect, you don't have access to all the possibilities of the quantum field holds. The only way to access a quantum field is by being in the now. Keep in mind that this cannot be just an intellectual process. Thoughts and feelings must be coherent. In other words, this meditation requires that you drop down about 10 inches out of your head and move into your heart. Open your heart and think about how it would feel if you embodied a combination of all the traits that you admire and that make up your ideal self. You may object that you can't know how it would feel because you've never experienced what it's like to have those traits and to be that ideal self. My response is your body can experience this before you have any physical evidence ahead of your senses. If a future desire that you've never experienced actually manifests in your life, you have to agree that you've experienced an elevated emotion such as joy, excitement, or gratitude. So those emotions that you can naturally focus on, instead of being enslaved to emotions that are only the residue of your past, you are now using elevated emotions to create the future. The elevated emotions of gratitude, love, and so forth all have a higher frequency that'll help you move into a state of being where you can feel as though that desired event have actually occurred. If you're in a state of greatness, then the signal you send out to the quantum field is that the events have already come to pass. Giving thanks allows you to emotionally condition your body to believe that you're in producing your gratitude has already happened. By activating and coordinating your three brains. Meditation allows you to move from thinking to being. And once you're in a new state of being, you are more prone to act and think equal to who you are being. Perhaps you wondered why it may be hard to move into a state of gratitude or to give thanks ahead of the actual experience. It is possible that you've been living by memorized emotions that have become so much a part of your identity that on a subconscious level, you now cannot feel any other way than you're accustomed to. If so, maybe your identity has become a matter of how you appear to the world on the outside to distract you and change how you feel on the inside. In the next chapter, we're going to examine how to close that gap and bring about true liberation. When you can readily feel gratitude or joy or fall in love with the future without needing any person, thing, or experience to cause you to feel that way, then these elevated emotions will be available to fuel your creations. I'm Brenny Larson, reader of Chapter 6, Open Books, Open Minds Club. Chapter 9, The Meditative Process, Introducing and Preparing. As I stated earlier, the main purpose of the meditating or meditating is to improve your attention from the environment, your body and the passage of time so that what you intend, what you think becomes your focus of these externals. You can then change your internal state independent of the outside world. 
Meditating is also a means for you to move beyond your analytical mind so that you can have access to your subconscious mind. That's crucial since the subconscious is where all your daily habits, bad habits and behaviors that you want to change reside. Introduction. All the information you have received up to this point has been intended to help you understand what will you be doing in this section as you learn how to use the meditative process to create a new reality. And once you comprehend and repeatedly execute the how-to steps presented here, you can then work on anything that you want to change in your life. Remind yourself often that in taking the steps to change you are pruning away the habit of being yourself so that you can create a new mind for your new future. When I do the process you are about to learn, I want to lose myself in the consciousness that associates with my known reality and be devoid of the thoughts and feelings that define me as the old self. In the beginning, the newness of the task you are undertaking might cause you to feel unsettled or uncomfortable. That's okay. It's just your body, which has become your mind, resisting the new training process. Understand this before you initiate your discipline and relax each step to design to be easy, to understand and simple to follow. Personally, I look forward to my meditation practice as much as anything as I do, and I find much such order, peace, clarity and inspiration that I really miss a day. It took some time for me to arrive at this relationship, so please be patient with yourself. Turning small steps into one easy habit. Whenever you learn anything new, new that required your full attention and committed practice, you probably followed specific steps during your initial introduction. This makes it easier to break down the complexities of the skill or task at hand so the mind can stay focused without being overwhelmed. In any endeavor of the course, your goal is to, to memorize what you're learning so that eventually you can do it naturally, effortlessly, subconsciously. Essentially, you want to make this a new skill and habit. It's easy to comprehend and execute any new skill when, by repetition, you master one small task or procedure at a time and then move on to the next. Over time, string each step together as part of a one coordinated process. The sign that you're on your way to is when all steps start to look like one easy fluid motion and your your and you produce the intended result. That's your aim in learning this meditation as a step by step process. For example, in learning to hit a golf ball, there are many there are there are a host of cues that, that your mind has to process in order to have your actions match your intentions. Imagine that while you're preparing to tee off for the first time, your best friend shouts, keep your head down, bend your knees, shoulders square and back erect. Keep your keep your front arm straight but loosen your grip. Swift your weight when you swing, hit behind the ball and follow through. My favourite, relax. All these instructions at once could throw you into a state of paralysis. What if instead you worked on one thing at a time, following a methodical order? In time, it seems logical that your your swing would look look much like one motion. Similarly, if you were learning to cook a French recipe, you would start by following its initial steps. 
not that enough time, do that enough times, and there would be more of a moment when you no longer would prepare recipe as separate steps, but as one continuous process. You would integrate the instructions into your body-mind, merge many steps into just a few, and eventually cook the meal in half the time. You'd go from thinking it to, to doing your body memorizing of what you're doing, as well as your mind. And that's what a, a procedural memory is. This phenomenon occurs when you do anything long enough, you begin to know what you know how. Building a neural network for meditation. Remember that the more knowledge you have, the better prepared you are for a new experience. Every meditation step you practice will have a meaning to you based on what you learned earlier in this book. Each one is, a, is based on a scientific or philosophical, philosophical, philosophical understanding so that nothing is left to conjecture. The steps are presented in a specific order designed to help you memorize this process for personal change. Although I have mapped out a suggested four-week program for you to learn the entire process, please take as much time as you need to practice each step until it becomes familiar. The best pace the set is one which is comfortable so that you never feel overwhelmed. You'll begin every session by doing the previous step you learned, then practice the new material for that week. Because it's more effective to learn some steps together, some weeks will call you for to practice two or more steps. Also, I recommend that you practice each new mindful set or group of steps for at least a week before you move on to the next one. In a few weeks you'll be building quite a neural network for meditation. So just a four week plan. Week one every day, do step one. Induction start daily every day, session by once again, practice the first step and then add step two. Recognizing step three and admitting the clearing and step the clearing and then step four surrendering. Start every day daily session by practicing step one, which is step four and then Step five, observing and reminding. And step six, so step six is redirecting. Start every daily session by practicing step one through to six, then step, add step seven, creating and rehearsing. Please take your time and build a strong foundation. If you're ready or already an experienced meditator, meditator or to do more at once, that's fine. But work at, at following all the instructions and committing what you will be doing to memory. When you can concentrate on what you're doing without letting your thoughts wander to any extraneous stimuli, you come to a point when your body actually aligns with your mind. Now your new skill will become easier and easier to do, thanks to Hebb's law of firing and wiring. The ingredients of learning, attention, instruction and practice will develop an associated neural network to reflect your intention. Preparation. Preparing your tools, the right stuff, separately from your meditation sessions, you will read some descriptive text about each step, often accompanied by questions and prompts under the heading opportunity to write. I recommend that you keep a notebook handy to write down your answers and review your responses before you go into each day's meditation. That way, your written thoughts can serve as a roadmap to prepare you to navigate through the limited procedures in which you will access the operating system of your subconscious. Listen up. When you're first learning the meditation steps, you may want to listen to pre-recorded 
guided session. For example, you will learn an induction technique that will use in every one, every one of your daily sessions to help you reach the highly coherent awesome brainwave state in preparation for the approach that is the focus of chapters 11 to 13. In each, in, sorry, in addition, the steps you are to learn each week are available for you to follow in a series of guided meditations. The two approaches to meditation, meditation one, wherever you see this headphone icon, the guided induction or a meditation is available. To listen to this guided meditation, you can download them from, from drjoedispenza.com and either play them in your MP3 form or buy them onto a CD. After you read each chapter, then journal your responses in a notebook so you can download a corresponding meditation. Each week as you add the next steps or step or steps to those you practiced previously, you can find the next related meditation available for download. It will be listed as the one week meditation, week two meditation, week three meditation and week four meditation. Week four will include the entire meditation. For example, when you hear the week two meditation, it will lead you through to the week one step, which is an induction technique, which will then add three more steps where you will be practicing week two. When you do the practice three session meditation, you will you will repeat the steps you learn in weeks one and two, and then add those steps to week three. Meditation option two. Alternatively, scripts for those for these guided sessions are included in the appendices so that you can read them until you memorize them, sequence, or dictate them into a recording device. Appendices A and B provide two techniques for induction. Appendix C is a script for the entire meditation encompassing all of the steps you will learn in part three. If you decide to use the appendix C script to guide you through a meditation, then each week you can please start with the steps you learned in the previous week and build on them by doing that each week's meditation. your environment. Location, location, location. You have learned that overcoming your environment is a critical step in breaking the habit of being yourself. Finding the right environment in which to meditate, one with a minimum of distractions, will really give you a leg up on defending the first of the big three. We'll cover the, the other two, the body and time in a moment. Pick a comfortable place where you can be alone and not be seduced by the addiction of the external world. Make it secluded, private and easily accessible, go to this place every day and make it your special location. You will form a strong connection with this, with this setting. It will represent where you, you frequent to tame the distracted ego, overcome the old self, create a new self and forge a new destiny. In time, you will truly look forward to being there. The participant in one event I led told me that she always fell asleep when she meditated. Our conversation went like this. Where do you practice your mindfulness training? In bed. What does the law of association say about your bed and sleep? I associate my bed and sleep. What does the law of repetition demonstrate about sleeping in your bed every night? If I sleep in the same place nightly, I am hardwiring an association with bed and sleep. Given the fact that the neural networks are being, are being formed by combining the law of association with the law of repetition, might you have been 
have formed a neutral network to, to the effect that that bed, bed, bed means sleep. And since neural networks are automatic programs that, that we unconsciously use every day, does it stand to reason that when you are on your bed and your body and as a mind will tell you to automatically unconsciously fall into oblivion, yep, I guess I need a better place to meditate. Not only did I suggest that she stay, stay out of the bed when she meditates, but that she finds a place separate from your bed, her bedroom. When you want to build a new neural network, it takes it makes good sense to do your mindfulness practice in a setting that repeats growth, rapid regeneration, and a new future. And please do not see this location as a torch chamber in which you have to meditate. This type of attitude will undermine your efforts. Preventing distractions from your environment. Make sure you won't be interrupted or distracted by people or a do not disturb sign may, may help. Or pets, as much as possible, eliminate sensory stimuli could force your mind back to your old personality. Awareness of the external world, especially to elements of your familiar environment. Turn off your phone and computer. I know it's hard, but those those calls, text, tweets, indicator, you know, IMs and emails can wait. You also don't want the aroma of coffee brewing or food cooking to waft into your meditation setting. Ensure that the room is comfortable temperature with no draft and usually use a blindfold. Music. Music can be useful as long as you don't play selections that will bring you to mind distracting associations. If I play music, I typically use soft, relaxing, trance-inducing instruments or chants without lyrics. When I do not listen to music, I often put in there. Preparing your body. Position, position, position. I sit up every day straight, my back is totally vertical. My neck is erect, my arms make the wrist be poised, and still, and my body is relaxed. What about using a recliner? Just as with seating in many, many people fall asleep in recliners. Sitting upright on a regular chair, limbs uncrossed, is best if you prefer to sit on the ground and cross your legs in his car, that's fine too. Preventing bodily distraction. In effect, you may want to put your body away so that you can focus without needing to pay it for any distraction. For example, use a restaurant, dress in loose clothing, remove your watch, drink a little water, have more within reach, take off and eat hunger pangs before you begin. Head nodding versus head nodding off. Since we're talking about the body, let me address an issue that may come up in your own meditation practice. Although you are sitting right upright, you may you may find your head is nodding as you as you as as though you had are about to fall asleep. This is a good sign. You're moving into alpha and state to state, brainwave state. Your body is used to lie down when your brainwave slows down. When you suddenly nod with this, your body wants to doze off. With this, with the continued practice, you'll become accustomed to your brain slowing down while you're sitting upright. The head nodding will eventually stop, and your body won't tell 
want to have what tend to fall asleep. When to meditate. As you know, daily changes to various brain chemistry remain in results of conscious mind. Just after you wake up your morning and before you go to bed, these are the best times to meditate because they can Slip into alpha state. I prefer to meditate around the same time every morning. If you are really enthusiastic and would like to meditate at both times of the day, go for it. However, I suggest that folks start just start starting start starting out so that you can put it into daily practice. How long how long to meditate? Take a few minutes every day meditation session to review and you writing you may have done in connection with it with the letter with the step you are about to practice. As I said, um, think of these notes as your roadmap to the journey you are about to take. You may also find it is helpful to reread portions of the text to remind you of what you are about to do before you go into meditation. While you're learning the process, every session will start with a 10 to 15 minute um, induction. As you as you add steps to your time frame, should lengthen by another 10 to 15 minutes a session. Every over time, you will um, more rapidly through the steps with which you are familiar with. By the time you learn how to do all these in procession and in your daily meditation, including induction will generally take about 40 to 50 minutes. If you need to finish by a certain time, set a timer to go off 10 minutes early before you must end the session. That will give you um, a heads up to complete, to complete the training session in the, in, in the US, um, rather than having to stop abruptly without bringing what you are doing to a close. Set aside enough time to meditate so that the clock doesn't become a concern. After all, if you're meditating and you find yourself thinking about your watch, you haven't overcome this time. Essentially, you may have to wake up earlier and or go bed later in order to carve out a shot in your day, a slot in your day. Preparing the state of mind, mastering the ego. To be honest, I do have these days where I evacuated my ego for tooth and nail since it wants to be in control. Some mornings as I begin the process my little mind starts thinking about flights to catch meetings with staff, budget, a patient report and articles I need to write. The kids and my and their complexities, complexities, phone calls I have to make and random thoughts from nowhere pop into my head. I'm obsessing about everything in my external life. Typical my mind, like most other people, is either anticipating or future or remembering the past. When that occurs, I have to settle down and realize that those are all the things, associations I have, nothing to do with creating something new in the past or the moment. If you, if you happen to, to you, if this happens to you, it's your job to go beyond the, the tedium of normal thinking and enter the creative world or the creative moment. 
more to your body. It's your body bucks like an um, unbridled stallion because it wants to be the mind. To get up and to do something, think about some place it has to go in the future or remember a past emotional experience with some person in your life. You must settle it down with the present moment and relax it. Every time you you do, you are reconditioning your body to a new mind, and in time it will acquiesce. It was conditioned by an unconscious mind. It has to be trained or retrained by you to love it, work with it, and be kind to it. It will ultimately surrender you to it. To master it. To its master. As its master. Remember to be determined, persistent, excited, joyful, flexible, and tired. When you do so, you're racing for the, the hand of the divine. Now let's begin.